Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI's senior writer, Grant Wall, SI.com's Ben Littleton, and later on we'll be joined by SI.com's Brian Strauss. We are coming to you a day after Juventus stunned Real Madrid uh, in the Spanish capital to advance to the Champions League final against Barcelona. June 6th in Berlin, it'll be Barcelona and Juventus. Grant, Ben, uh, quite quite the showing by Juventus. Grant, let's start with you. Uh, were, were you surprised that they were able to get it done in Spain? Uh, and, and what do you think about their run to the final? Certainly mildly surprised, especially the way Real Madrid went up on the penalty in the first half. Uh, and yet, I do think a lot of people underestimated Juventus heading into this. You know, everyone was basically looking at this team as like the fourth week sister. And this is a different Juventus team with some terrific players. Uh, Max Allegri, I think, has been very good tactically with them. They don't play like this stereotypical Italian team that's just worried about defense. You know, they can score. Uh, and just a tremendous story to see the Alvaro Morata score, the decisive goal against his ex-team, Real Madrid, in the Bernabeu, uh, a team that had told him, you're not good enough for us. We don't want you. Uh, so uh, a lot of good storylines there. And, and yes, surprise uh, only in the sense that, um, you know, Real Madrid was a team that uh, has a ton of money behind it, obviously, and their stars, Cristiano Ronaldo, Gareth Bale, um, you know, they didn't perform in the second half when it mattered most. Yeah, and Ben, touching on the, the Morata and, and the money thing, you, you talked about this in your piece on Planet Football uh, for us, that Real Madrid spends all this money on their front line, yet it's their own academy player that they produce that comes back to haunt them. It's 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 kind of a, a harsh way to go, yeah. Definitely, and it's uh, you know it, su- it sums up the Hollywood way that that President Florentino Perez wants to do things. He'd rather have the big names, the big guys, than than the um, Cantera products, the products from the academy. Morata wanted to stay, but um, Real Madrid didn't didn't want him. And in fact, one of the reasons I think Madrid struggled was because the front three looked tired. Bale has just come off an injury. Benzema's just come off an injury. Ronaldo never takes a break. And part of the philosophy of the president, which uh, Ancelotti, the coach, has to abide by, or, or at least always abides by, is that when the three of them are fit, they play. And that means at the end of the season, when the games are very, very important and the margins are very fine, if they're not 100%, it shows. And I think they struggled last night. I think Ronaldo um, was not in any way decisive in the second half. Um, Bale will get criticised for missing chances and chances, the type of chances that he was scoring a year earlier, which just shows what impact confidence has on a player. Because... The, the headed chance that he missed late on was very, very similar to the headed chance he scored in the final against Atletico Madrid 12 months ago. And yet, he never really looked like scoring it because he, he's up against it mentally as well as, as well as physically at this stage of the season. And yet, Ancelotti did have options. He could have played Jesse more in the season. He could have played Chicharito more in the season, um, who has done very well in the last four weeks since he's uh, been called upon a bit more. But these these guys could have been rotated in more and Morata had he stayed. So when it comes to the decisive part of the season, 
the, the Real Madrid looked tired, and I, and I think Ronaldo does deserve some criticism for his second half performance because if this is the guy that um, you know wants to uh, win the Ballon d'Or again, which is just a subplot, you know, side issue really to the to the main thing, but he is the leader of the team, he is the the face of the team, and he didn't play like that when they needed him to. He had a lot of space in the first half. He missed a couple of good chances. Um, Bale set him free on a big crossfield ball, um, and he was one-on-one with the keeper. Well, it was pretty tricky, but he hit a left-footer shot into the side netting. There was another chance that Benzema created for him. He twisted his marker, but then made the wrong option. He crossed uh, into the middle rather than trying a shot. And these are decisive moments. This is when we're able to one up, and another goal uh, you know, would have made a huge difference at that stage of the game. And he didn't make that difference. And the difference between him and Messi, who made the difference in the big games, I mean, think back to our conversation a week ago, just after Messi had scored two astonishing goals against Bayern Munich to put them three up, is that Messi does it time and again on the big games, always on the big games. And Ronaldo, this time, was not able to deliver. Yeah, and ultimately that was the difference. And that, that moment you were talking about when he didn't shoot, I mean, he was. it's not like there was that hard of an angle you know he was a little bit off to the left of of the goal but that's a, a a ball that you would expect him to put in the back of the net and instead he opted for the pass Real Madrid obviously did not get that goal that they needed to to kind of give them a little more breathing room and then Juventus uh took it took it from them um and now you look at Barcelona matching up against Juventus uh in this final Barcelona is going to be the overwhelming favorite they're going to be the favorite no matter who they played um but given that it's not Real Madrid and that it's this perpetual underdog Juventus and four-time defending Serie A champion. It's it's tough to call them an underdog against anyone, but Barcelona, obviously, you look at Messi, Neymar, Suarez, the way that they're playing together. Grant, do you see Juventus putting up a a fight? Is this this going to be a a blowout? You do? Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I I think it would be a mistake to continue underestimating Juventus uh, heading into this. They'll have a lot of time to prepare uh, that said, Barcelona will be the favorite, deservedly, the way they're playing. Um, you know, you look at what they did in Munich in the return leg, and they did exactly what was needed. Uh, gave up the early goal against Bayern, and you thought, oh, maybe Bayern might have a shot. This is the recipe that they need uh, to get back in this, coming in down three goals. But very quickly, Barcelona uh, quashed those hopes with just some tremendous play by their three-headed monster. Lionel Messi is in top form again, and, and Lionel Messi in top form is an amazing sight to behold, and it's just such a treasure to be able to, to see him play at that level again. Not that he's been playing poorly for the last year, but he's on a stretch right now. This is Messi at his best again, uh, and it's good to see him do that under a coach, Luis Enrique, who is not Pep Guardiola. Um, and the way that he's working Messi with Neymar with Luis Suarez right now, they've figured things out. And uh, I think that obviously is going to be the biggest challenge for Juventus is how do you deal with that? Um, Because uh, the way Barcelona just took apart Bayern in the first half, they were on the way to embarrassing them. And and Bayern, being a proud team, having a a very good coach and very good players, uh, saved some pride in the second half. But, you know, this Barcelona team right now, I'm a little bummed that Luis Enrique is not getting a little more credit because it's interesting to see how certain managers get a ton of credit for their team's success 
uh, whenever they play well. And then others like Luis Enrique, basically, I, I've seen characterizations of him almost just rolling out the balls. And, and I think he does deserve credit. This is his first season. And uh, he's taken Barcelona to a final um, again for the first time uh, since 2011. Uh, and, uh, you know, has a, a chance to, to potentially do what Pep Guardiola did at Barcelona. Yeah, and it's not just this final. It's the Copa del Rey final. They're they're on the verge of winning the league. I mean, he could win a treble in his first season as as Barcelona manager, and you do that, you should be legendary status. And and I think you're right. It's he is kind of both managers really in in the final. Allegri as well. I mean, when he was appointed uh, Antonio Conte's successor, I don't think there's really anyone who thought that he was the guy that was definitely going to put them over the top and and take them to the Champions League final, yet here he is. And, and Ben, do you think that's kind of one of the major subplots of this final is is these underappreciated managers that have, have really gotten the job done under the spotlight? Definitely. I mean, Allegri's in his first season. There was outrage when he was appointed, um, but it was it proved to be a masterstroke. Now, both these teams were on course for the treble as well, which is the first time that two Champions League finalists have um, competed for the treble against each other as well uh, in a kind of winner-takes-all situation since 2010 when Inter Milan were up against Bayern Munich having won their domestic leagues and their cup competitions. And whoever won that one, it was actually Jose Mourinho's Inter, uh, goes on to win the treble. So for both these guys, as you say, in their debut seasons at the club, to be on course for the treble is is an astonishing achievement. And while I think quite a lot of people will be upset that the... Um, the Classico final that has never happened in European Cup history uh, is avoided again. Um, Real Madrid won't be there. Personally, I'm quite relieved about it. I'm, these teams play each other all the time. Real Madrid and Barcelona, we have it twice a year in the league. They play each other sometimes in the Spanish Cup. They've played each other in the Champions League semifinals in recent years. The constant Ronaldo-Messi narrative will, will continue. Um, and yet, you know, for the third year running, we've got an underdog in this final. Two years ago, it was Dortmund. Last year, it was Atletico. And this year, OK, they're the four-time Italian champion and you know, their revenues are, are huge. But as Grant said at the beginning, you know, they were the fourth weakest sister of the group. They are still an underdog. And I think that's nice because you know, the problem with Europe, European football at the moment is there is a bit too much familiarity. Uh, we see the same teams playing against each other. We had Real Madrid-Schalke two seasons running. We had psg Barcelona in the group stage and in the knockout, um, you know, sometimes it's a bit of overkill. So to have two sides that haven't played against each other is really, really nice. I don't think these sides have met since 2003. So that's one good thing for me. And also two different countries as well. This is a European Cup. You want as many different countries in Europe um, associated with the, with the final. And in the last two years, again, we've had an all-German affair and an all-Spanish affair. So I think it's nice to share to share the love around Europe. One more subplot that I'm looking forward to in the final is Lionel Messi against Carlos Tevez. So while Messi Ronaldo is the is the obvious narrative for the best player in the world, there's a really interesting story, you know, developing or that has been developing for the last five years really in Argentina, where Tevez is universally popular because he's seen as a, a player of the people. The way he plays, the way he looks, he plays like a a bull in a in a china shop trying to prove a point and rampaging around and he plays with his heart on his sleeve um and messi is much more controlled um and more european and that's partly because he's been in europe since he was 13 and so there's this emotional connection that tevez has in his homeland 
but he hasn't played for his country for about four years. He's just been called up in the squad for the Copa America, but he's been he's been uh, out, out of the international side, um, partly due to um, disciplinary issues with the coach. But, uh, you know, now he's back in the side for the summer. It could be interesting. But, you know, Messi v. Tevez is, is one that I'll be watching. Yeah, for sure. That's that's definitely – and they're both – you know, the form that they're both in also uh, adds adds to that. Uh, there are so many other fascinating kind of player one-on-one, two-on-one, however you want to look at it, uh, dynamics. Obviously, you know, Xavi, is, his role has been reduced with, with Barcelona. But the fact that Xavi and Pirlo – are in the same final. I think, Grant, this is something you put out uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of the game. Yes, or yesterday, we're talking the day after Juventus uh, beat Real Madrid. Um, I think that's that's awesome. Seeing Gianluigi Buffon go back to Berlin, where he won the World Cup uh, in a penalty shootout with Italy, and now can go win a Champions League final, perhaps, in that same stadium. That's a fascinating subplot. And, of course, you know what was coming. Luis Suarez against Giorgio Chiellini and Patrice Evra. We are going to hear oh so much of this for the next two plus weeks, uh, Grant. What what are what are some of the dynamics that really have have your eye uh, from the final? As I shoot a staple gun into my head about the uh, <laughs> Luis Suarez, Ever, and Chiellini stuff, those guys just need to get out in front of that, make a statement, and and try and be done with it. Say they've addressed it because we have a long run up until June sixth, and you know it's an easy story to do. Uh, I am fascinated, as Ben said, by the the Messi Tevez angle because. On the Argentine national team, Messi does obviously have a lot of power, and there's certainly uh, people who think that uh, Messi influenced Tevez not being on the World Cup team. Messi's buddy buddy with Sergio Aguero. Now, you know, they're extremely close. Tevez is not really in that group, and now we see Tevez getting back into the mix under a new national team manager. Uh, and so, my guess is Messi and Tevez will say all the right things about their relationship heading into this game. Uh, but there's not a ton of love there, uh, to be honest. And uh, as Ben said, this very Argentine divide of who's more Argentine. And, and Tevez is the man of the people, El Pueblo, the, the, much more like Diego Maradona, um, you know, viewed as very Argentine, whereas a lot of Argentines still view Lionel Messi uh, as... Uh, very European, very Catalan, went to Barcelona at the age of 13 uh, and, you know, hasn't won a World Cup like Maradona. So uh, very interested to see the Argentine perspective on all of this. Um, uh, Other subplots, you know, I I think you look at these teams and I hope we, you know, I I think we'll get a good soccer game, you know, And, and sometimes finals, Champions League finals, World Cup finals are not great games. But both of these teams are are playing uh, an open style right now and and seem to want to go toe-to-toe. You think back to the first leg of the semis between Juve and and Real Madrid, and and the first half was just fantastic from an entertainment perspective. And uh, I think we'll see that in this game. I I don't envision Allegri deciding the only way I can win and is to, to totally defend because that's not the way that Juventus has played this season. So um, I'm really excited that we're going to see a good game. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I ultimately, I, there are so many different ways to dissect these teams, this final. To me, what it comes down to is the fact that Messi, Neymar, and Suarez are unstoppable right now. I don't, I don't think that, that there's a team. I don't think that there's a back line. I don't think there's anything really that can stop them the way that they're playing 
currently. Now, obviously, there's plenty of time between now and, and the final. An injury could happen. Fatigue could happen. You never know. But the way things are going right now, I I have a hard time seeing anyone uh, really putting a, a halt to the three of them. What they're doing right now is is so it's just special to watch. If you're a neutral, if you're a Real Madrid fan, you might want to look away uh, for the next few weeks because there's going to be a lot of Barcelona trophy lifting. Um, ben, do you see it differently? Do you think that this Juventus team is capable of of kind of stopping that front line? Uh, I think they're capable of uh, doing a decent job. Yeah, the way Buffon is playing and um, Allegri does have that defence pretty well drilled. I mean, for me, to add to, to Grant's storylines, there are a couple more that throw forward to, to next season as well. What does this mean for the future of Paul Pogba? Because, you know, if, if Juventus win the Champions League, he could either leave on a high and say, well, I can't do any more. But by reaching this final, Juventus bag themselves 100 million euros in in prize money given uh, the other Italian sides poor showing in, in Europe this season um, and that could be available just to bump up his contract and get him to stay for one more year so while Pogba is is one of the biggest names who's expected to be on the, the summer market uh, you know it might just help um, Juventus keep him by by reaching and, and indeed winning this final and then we've spoken about Luis Enrique as well. Now, this summer, Barcelona have their presidential elections and you never know who is going to win and, and who the winner wants to be coached because often the candidates put forward a, a coach on their ticket. Um, you'd imagine the current incumbent is in a bit of trouble, Bartomeu, because uh, he's um, up with Sandro Rossell in a fraud case um, over the Neymar signing. And so if Laporta, as has been reported, wants to come back, he may not want to be associated with, with Luis Enrique. He may not want Luis Enrique to be his man. And so Luis Enrique could be in the weird position of winning the treble in his first season at Barcelona and potentially not being the coach there next season. I mean, that's just so bizarre. So I'm just throwing it forward to see, you know, next season will be as fascinating or what happens in the summer will be, so fascinating as well at both these clubs and uh you know that's that's something to keep an eye on yeah that i can't even imagine uh something as as wild as that happening but but look if it's if it's in play if it's a possibility it's something to to watch an out, out for uh now before we change gears a little bit and and go to the the american game uh the two teams that fell real madrid bayern munich when the expectations are that high at, at clubs like that, there tend to be big swinging changes at Real Madrid. You're hearing Ancelotti is is going to be headed for the exits. Gareth Bale has obviously been subject to a lot of of criticism at Bayern Munich. Pep Guardiola's name has has obviously been um, you know touted as as the, the next Manchester City manager or, or headed to the exits. Uh, Grant, in terms of changes for these two clubs. Uh, what do you see happening? And I know you've you've done some reporting uh, on this in recent weeks. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit from just my reporting and then what I just kind of personally think might happen here. Just from my reporting, uh, my understanding is that Ancelotti's been aware for a while that if he didn't win a trophy this year, meaning Champions League or La Liga, that he would not be returning as manager. I, I do think that is what will happen. Um I do know that Man City has contacted him, uh, and 
that to me seems like a, a much more likely scenario than Pep Guardiola going to Man City. Um, you know, it's a little bit of what have you done for me lately, and it's ridiculous, obviously. Ancelotti won Champions League just last year, but he also signed up for this and knew what he was signing on for when you agree to coach a team at a club that is run by Florentino Perez. So um, not all that surprising there, I guess. Um, And then you look at Bayern, and uh, my understanding from my reporting was that uh, as long as Bayern didn't go out in a horribly embarrassing way in Champions League, that Pep Guardiola was going to be welcome back next year. Pep Guardiola has no desire to leave Bayern Munich. He's very much a contract guy. He's said time and again that he has one more year on his deal. He'll be back at Bayern next year. The journalists who know him best, Guillaume Balaguer, Marty Paranau, who've written great books inside Pep Guardiola's team, uh, have reported that he'll be at Bayern Munich next year. So the question would be, does Bayern Munich still want Guardiola? Uh, and I think they do. Uh, you know, I think there might be some elements within that club because it's a very political situation inside that club who – uh, are disappointed and, and may even a couple of those guys may want him gone, but I I don't see Karl Heinz Rummenigge, the chairman at Bayern, pushing Pep out the door. Uh, I expect him to be back next season. And and Ben, as for Bale uh, at Real Madrid, it came under so much criticism, um, and obviously you could you could see uh, the frustration in in his face yesterday with some of the chances that he missed. Uh, is he? A dead man walking at Real Madrid. I mean, they spent all this money for him. You can't imagine they're going to be willing to take that much of a loss. Uh, and plus, he did win them Champions League. It's crazy how things change from from year to year. But is is Real Madrid going to be his team next year? I think so. But it, but but you're right. It is crazy how quickly it can change. I feel sorry for him because he was so decisive last year, and we didn't talk about it as much as we should have done, or at least it didn't get the credit um, that it deserved, his achievements in that first season, just as I think his performances in the second half of this season have been over-exaggerated as well. I do feel that he, he lacks support um, from, from the group and maybe he doesn't do himself any favours because I feel I think he doesn't speak the language very well. He um, is very close to Luka Modric, but not any of the other players. And you kind of sense that as well. Just watching the game when he made a mistake or overhit the ball, there was no one really coming over to him to pat him on the back or have a, have a word with him. He, he really looked quite alone out there, um, even though he was the guy trying to make it all happen. And yet you just wonder how long Ronaldo can keep up his form, his fitness. He's now 30. Has he got one year playing 60 games a season and, and being this prolific? Or has he got two more years? Because what you could see happening is next season, you know, Ronaldo and Bale share top billing. And the season later, when Ronaldo is 31 and a half, Bale is in prime position to to take over. My feeling is that Bale will stay one more year and then um, be tempted by a return home. But that would be almost the wrong time because that's the time when, when you're ready to take over from Ronaldo. So it's just a question of how patient he can be. But... I certainly think it would be premature for for him to leave and for um, the club to push him out. And I don't think they will push him out because he's very much Perez's guy. And so I I think he'll stay. Definitely a fascinating 
element of, of all of this, a fascinating Champions League, really. I mean, I don't think from a, an entertainment standpoint you could really ask for anything more with the way things have played out uh, this season and, and all the storylines. So something to to look forward to over the next few weeks as we get ready for Barcelona-Juventus. Uh, we'll, we'll change gears a little bit to talk uh, American soccer and, and going along the lines of Bale and Luka Modric, who played at Tottenham. Got Tottenham goalkeeper Brad Friedel uh, announcing his retirement today. And to, to help us break down Brad Friedel's career uh, a little bit, we're going to welcome in Brian Strauss. Brian, welcome. Uh, thanks. I'm a, uh, I'm a Caps fan, so I'm not in a good mood. Tough, tough day to be a Washington D.C. sports fan. No, no, just just the Capitals, just just them. They're 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 alone on Choke Mountain by themselves. <laughs> Not bringing the other teams into this. Uh, well, they uh, they were the opposite of clutch. Which uh, clutch though is is one way you could call Brad Friedel's career. Uh, Brad Friedel, one of the best goalkeepers in in U.S. soccer history. Uh, amazing career, the longevity, the the level that he played at. Um, obviously, helped the U.S. to the quarterfinals of the 2002 World Cup. Um, Brian, just when you think of Brad Friedel uh, and, and what he did uh, on the field, I guess, what, what do you think? I think of 2002. I, I, I think of, and I think of him as part of an incredible tradition. I mean, for me, it's hard to sort of really pull Brad Friedel, you know, apart from what started with Tony Miola and, and went through Casey Keller and, and now Tim Howard. Um, and and perhaps on to Brad Guzan. I mean, it's he he he's part of uh, a tradition that American soccer can be really proud of, and sort of one of the few ways uh, so far that the game in this country has had an impact uh, on on the sport as it's played at the highest level. You know, we've produced phenomenal goalies, and uh, and Brad Friedel, uh, incredible consistency, and then those 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 penalty kick saves in two thousand two that will will live forever. And uh, you know, it's it's a uh, you know, it's time. Obviously, he's he's 84 years old, and it's time for him to move on. Um, and uh, you know, he'll be celebrated along with the other legends uh, that the U.S. has produced in goal. 84. That's got to be a record for a Premier League goalkeeper. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. I think he does hold the record for age of a Premier League goalkeeper. <laughs> You're exactly right. 84, 43. It's it's all it's all the same, right? Uh, I. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo those sentiments, and also the accent. Oh man, the accent that he developed while while being in England was is pretty legendary as well. Grant, um, I know you've you've gotten to know Brad pretty well, obviously through uh, through reporting, and now he's he's been doing some work with Fox, and he's going to be doing more work with with Fox TV. Um, just put a bow on on his career. Well, it's it's a remarkable career when you go back to him playing at UCLA. Um, to being involved with the U.S. national team for so long. Uh, and he set records in the Premier League, 310 consecutive starts is a record, um, and played in 450 Premier League games, uh, which, you know, those are marks of quality in a goalkeeper when you can stick around that much in, in that long, in that pressure cooker environment. And the crazy thing about it is his numbers would have been a lot higher if he hadn't had to deal with, with work permit problems for so long when Liverpool first wanted him. And he would have been in the stratosphere on number of games played if he had been allowed to actually go to the Premier League uh, when the Premier League first wanted him. So uh, for Brad to, to fight through that, to get there eventually, and have such a successful career over there, uh, it's it's just remarkable. And then the longevity. I went to 
do a Sports Illustrated magazine story on Brad Friedel just, I think it was three seasons ago, when he was still the starting goalkeeper at Tottenham, a team that uh, was not far from the top of the Premier League. And uh, yoga was something that he credited for lengthening his career, allowing him to uh, to play much longer than anyone would have expected. Uh, so uh, he's a really smart guy, too, and I think people will see even more of that now that he's moving back to the U.S. and is going to be working for Fox Sports, doing a lot of broadcast for them, a lot of insight. Uh, and I hope people get over the accent thing. Yes, it's kind of funny, but the content of what he says when he's calling a game or talking about a game, uh, it's, it's plain to see. I remember having a conversation with him a few years ago, and, and he said uh, something to the effect of that he, he worried about the fact that Americans didn't understand or, or recognize the commitment he still had to American soccer, that he'd been over in England for so long, and he left the national team a bit early, and, and the accent you know, and, and, and that he, that was something he really cared about was, was wanting to, wanting to, you know, come back or, or have an impact on American soccer and continuing to grow the game here. And he wanted to be sort of recognized for that. So we'll see if that happens. I think one thing also to look out for with Brad Friedel is he's had a lot of irons in the fire, talented guy. He is about to get his UEFA pro coaching license. He's been coaching in the Tottenham system there in addition to training. And he's going to be coaching as an assistant on the U20 US World Cup team with Tab Ramos in New Zealand coming up. So he's not just about doing media. I could see him being a coach uh, in MLS or potentially someday in Europe. Very interesting. Uh, obviously, you know, talented career that that is just about to reach its its next level. And it is crazy that he's 10 years removed from from playing for the national team. Uh, and here he is still in the Premier League. Granted, you know, didn't really play at all this year. But the fact that, you know, the longevity um, and everything that he put into it and on the club level um, was, was phenomenal. He's, uh, you know, a trailblazer in a lot of ways and, and also in a lot of ways, like Brian said, carrying on that tradition of the U.S. goalkeeper. Um, now, he's, he's not the only... Uh, figure in American soccer to retire this week, Dwayne De Rosario, um, just one of the best players in MLS history, announced his retirement. To me, I, I thought it was a, a little bit of an odd way for for him to go out. Obviously, he's a free agent; he wasn't on a team this year, so no real chance for for him to to get a, a swan song at all. But it was like an Instagram post on a Sunday night during the NYCFC Red Bulls game. Uh, it was. <laughs> To me, you know, I think of a guy of of that stature, and I would prefer to see his final, you know, moment before he goes off into the sunset be applauding the fans at his home stadium as he walks off. Nevertheless, one of the best players in MLS history, I believe sixth all-time uh, in goals. He had longevity, won four uh, MLS Cups. He won a Gold Cup. He won a U.S. Open Cup. He won Canadian Championships. He basically won everything there is to win in this region. Uh, except a CONCACAF Champions League title. Brian, you, you got to see him play down when he was with DC United, uh, up front and, and close. Just what did you think about the Rosario and, and where he stands kind of in the pantheon uh, of MLS players? I always regretted missing. Uh, I, I have this kind of thing where I don't like to work on my birthday. I just every year I just try to take my birthday off. And um, so it's a warning now. Um, <laughs> but uh, on my birthday, like in 2011, I think, was this game where DC had an early red card. And they were playing Toronto. And Di Rosario had a hat trick. 
for 10-man DC United and tied his former team 3-3. I think he scored the third goal in like the 88th minute. Um, he was spectacular. And I missed the game, and I've always regretted missing that game because I refused to work that day. Um, but <laughs> he was he, he was perhaps the most uh, audacious, flamboyant, and spectacular player the league has ever seen. Um, incredibly clutch, incredibly creative. He would pull goal, goals out of nothing. He could score from anywhere on the field. Bicycle kicks, volleys, dribbling through three guys. I mean, he, he simply had a level of confidence uh, that I think has been unmatched in league history. I mean, for me, he's, he's best 11 all time. Um, like, as you said, uh, he, he's not only put up the individual numbers, he's won trophies. Um, and and it's, a, it's a phenomenal career. There's the interesting other side to it, though, where he's kind of been a, I don't know, he's hard to figure out. He, he's, he can be evasive. He can be prickly. Um, he, he's not always an endearing personality. I, I remember one uh, MLS technical type saying to me something like, you know, what does it tell you when a player that talented has been traded that many times? You know, and it, it, it's something to think about that, that, you know, with great genius sometimes comes sort of, a, you know, a, a, a tough personality. And, and so but at the same time, he, he seems to have endeared himself to many teammates. He had a ton of messages of support. Um, and, and, and the guy's a legend. I mean, he, he's one of the great players in MLS history and, and he could have been at Milan. You know, he had that, that offer to, to join AC Milan as a teenager and he turned it down and, uh, we saw what resulted. Yeah. And I, you know, he, his MVP season, he played for three teams, right? He went from, That's right. from Toronto yeah, to New York. To, stat of all. Yep. Yeah. He went from Toronto to New York to DC, uh, ended up tying for the league leading goals with Chris Wanolowski that season. Um, but he was a big part of, of DC United's resurgence and bringing that team back to, to you know the level where it expects to be um back when when i was living in dc and i was um you know more of a of a writer type and i definitely thought that if i ever wrote a book it was going to be titled waiting for dero because he was just <laughs> epically late after every game uh to come out and talk to the media we're talking like an extra 90 minutes uh and uh it's you know but look you reach that that star level um and that that's just kind of what happens. Uh, for me, it's it's interesting because I felt like he always had a chip on his shoulder. Like MLS's salaries weren't uh, as high in his heyday, obviously, as they are now. And that's using the MLS standard because we all know that MLS salaries don't really pa- compare to anywhere around the world. But that's another discussion for another day. Um, but it, you almost wonder if he was in his prime now with the more DP spots and everything. I think he would have gotten the more of the the money recognition and maybe have less of that chip on his shoulder. I mean, there's that famous goal celebration he had in Toronto where he, he mimicked sign, writing sign a check. Me, sign me. Yep. Yeah. And that, uh, that, that is one of the images you talk about the other side of Dero that, that stands out to me. Uh, Grant, we've, we've talked about in you know, between ourselves, some of his greatest goals. Uh, there's that one free kick. Um, if you haven't seen the highlight, definitely check it out. Uh, it kind of defies the laws of science, right? It it bends <laughs> fully around a wall. This is while he's playing with the San Jose Earthquakes uh, and finds the back of the net, beating Kevin Hartman, I believe. Uh, is is that the one for you that, that you take away from his career? Yes, and, and fully knowing how Brian will respond to this and disagree with me, I am going to make my case that that is my favorite D-Row goal. And there's lots of great D-Row goals over the years. But to me... That goal against the Galaxy, if you watch the replay in particular and you see how far outside the post 
that ball started and where it ended up, uh, it's basically the equal to me of Roberto Carlos's famous free kick goal um, in, I think it was 97 in the Tournoi de France, which was an amazing goal as well. Um, just to see a ball basically defy the law of physics and, and to have that video angle so that we can see it and go, holy smokes, um, just a, a, a tremendous goal all around. And there's the cool thing about Dero is, is that there's a lot of goals you can choose from and have a very nice debate about what were his best goals. If I'm going to pick one word to define his career in MLS, it would be audacious. Uh, I thought he was always capable of doing something that just blew your mind on the field. Um, and an interesting guy, too, you know, uh, vegetarian, uh, Rastafarian, great goal celebrations. Um, you know, it was uh, uh, whatever that funky chicken thing was he did was great. You know, you knew that uh, you could expect that after one of these goals he scored. So uh, that he did it for so long in MLS and did it with different teams uh, makes it very impressive. Brian, uh, I'll, I'll let you counterpoint uh, because I know you think that goal is great, but – well, I was just going to say, I remember having a conversation with him one time about his uh, his his training habits, and and he talked about uh, you know eating eating strange Creole stews and 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 running sand on the islands and you know things like that. He he was very uh, he did things his own way, you know, and 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 was was incredibly fit as he aged, and so it, it worked for him. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a uh, you know I love a good free kick as as uh, as much as the next guy, but you know, I'll always believe that. You know, creativity and technique under duress is is far more impressive uh, than creativity and technique when you have all the time in the world to plan and think and nobody's trying to kick you. Um, that's what separates the greats. And so for me, yeah, that free kick was nice, but Di Rosario also did that kind of thing with literally no time to plan and with guys trying to, like, take him out and, you know, to, to, to improvise – and to demonstrate genius and skill and to do so while you're under duress or danger, that to me is always a thousand times more impressive. I, I would never vote a free kick a goal of the year. Uh, it, it just doesn't it just doesn't have the same level of 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 stress and demand and duress on the player who's scoring it. And and Di Rosario, like I said, scored full volleys, bicycle kicks. He scored from half field. You go on YouTube and just look at these look at these goals where he he beat two or three defenders and 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 turned the goalie inside out. These are these are things that he he did in real time. Um, these are things he did while while being chased, while being kicked, while being pulled. Um, that that stuff to me is just remarkable. And um, and yeah, he's an all time great. He, he's got he's got two uh, MLS Cup winning goals. Uh, against LA and uh, for San Jose and against New England for Houston. Um, the guy was just uh, remarkably clutch. And, um, you know, I, I guess Maple Leaf Sports, need, he's going to be ambassador now for Maple Leaf Sports. And um, they need some. They need some ambassadors. I mean, the t- TFC uh, blew the uh, Canadian Championship semifinals again last night. Um, you know, t- more turmoil there. So, so maybe D Rowe can make some people smile. I think that. MLS is obviously in its 20th season. It's relatively young. I feel like Di Rosario is going to be one of those players that, you know, decades down the line when we're looking back at the early years of, of MLS, he's someone that, uh, that you know, that the diehards will all be like, oh, man, you, you know, they'll be telling the stories of, of him and, and what he did because I feel like he will kind of go a little underappreciated after, you know, the top level of DPs, the Donovan, the Beckham, the Keen. 
Uh, we'll see what Jared and Lampard bring. Um, but he, you know, really was one of these guys that in the infancy of this league was was a, a big ticket. You know, he was. I agree. I, and Jaime Moreno is going to be there as well. Yeah. you're going to have you're going to have. I mean, you could argue Di Rosario and Jaime Moreno are two of the five best players in MLS history, and and they're both they're both going to be exactly where you you just said. They're going to be sort of underappreciated because their names aren't as big as, as the Keens and the Beckhams and the Honorees. That's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. But look, at, at the end of the day, uh, congratulations to Brad Friedel, Dwayne Rosario, a couple of fantastic careers, guys who should be celebrated and definitely will. We'll see what MLS does uh, at the All-Star Game this summer. I'm actually kind of curious to see. Obviously, Tottenham is going to be the opponent. Uh, Brad Friedel will, will not be under contract with Tottenham at that time, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer for me to honor him in, in some way. Uh, during that game, and, and Dwayne DeRosario as well, uh, I believe, scored uh, against Manchester United in the All-Star game in Houston, right? Just good opportunity, something to keep an eye out for down the line. Uh, well, those guys called it a career. We're going to call it a day. With that, uh, I want to thank Grant Wall, Ben Littleton, Brian Strauss. I am Avi Creditor. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast again, and we'll talk to you next time. about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.